This is the Modern Stoicism Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Joining me on the podcast today is David McFadzian. David has been a software engineer for over three decades and a practicing Stoic since 2011 after reading A Guide to the Good Life by William B. Irvin. David moved to Toronto in 2013 to join a medical device startup, which is where I met David. There, we were part of a team developing the world's first voice-activated, robotically-assisted neurosurgical exoscope. And we started our first Stoicism group there together, the Stoic Avengers. David is now interested in bringing the philosophy, practices, and techniques of Stoicism to engineering management. So today, uh, David, you wanted to go through a tweet that actually came from Ryan Holiday and the Daily Stoic, um, Eight Stoic Ways to Find Peace, which uh, the Daily Stoic tweeted on April 21st of this year. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you thought that that would be a great topic to go through? Sure. Um, So what's been on my mind lately is something I'm calling the Stoic Manager. So this is applying Stoicism to the workplace. And it was actually inspired by, I think, your first article, um, Stoicism in Tech. Um, right. Where, yeah, so since I've been practicing Stoicism for about eight years now, and what real, originally drew me to the philosophy was the pragmatism of it. It's It's a life philosophy, and since we spend a lot of our time at work and since a lot of uh, kind of the anxieties and conflicts in our life come from work, I, it seems like the perfect area to try to apply stoicism. Yeah, so um, I think this is actually how I recruited you into stoicism originally was starting a, a stoic group at work. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, for those of uh you listening to the podcast, um, if you missed the intro, or if I forgot to mention it in the intro, David and I used to work together at a medical device company here in Toronto. And um, David was a software manager, and I was a I was a, a test team manager, and we crossed paths. And it turned out that we it, the same aspects of stoicism kind of resonated with us. And um, David mentioned about uh, this event called Stoicon. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So we went and the rest, I guess, is, as you could say, history now. I mean, that was um, almost five years ago. So it's, uh, it's something that's definitely come up. So, so you're right. When we, when, when we both started, when we, when we both started down this path in parallel as in together, both you and I were managers at the time and we're trying to apply these uh, principles to our own lives. Exactly. Yeah. So um, in my career, I've kind of shifted between being a software engineer and a manager several times. Um, But just recently, just in the last couple of months, I became a full-time manager for the first time. Like Every time I was a manager before, I kind of shared some technical duties, some engineering duties. But now that I'm a full-time manager, I'm seeing some different aspects of the job. So I've been thinking a lot about the concept of a stoic manager, like in the sense that this is the kind of manager that I would aspire to be, like the kind of manager that I would want to have is like a, a stoic sage, right? I see. So as a manager sage. 
Yeah, exactly. Manager okay. Sensei. No. <laughs> and um, to bring up that tweet again, I was I just stumbled across it quite by accident. I, I read Daily Stoic daily, obviously, and it just resonated with me these eight points, eight stoic ways to find peace, I thought were great prompts, like in the sense that somebody could give you a, a writing prompt. This is kind of a, a talking prompt to talk about how stoicism might apply to management. Yeah, and I completely agree. I mean, looking at some of these, as we're going to go through in a second, certainly uh, there does seem to be a very good um, list of things here that a new man, either a new manager or even an existing manager can focus on. So um, I'm going to take a moment here and read through the list so that we have it uh, available for everyone to kind of think about. Um, and then after I read through the list, we'll actually go through the list one by one. So, so number one, don't suffer imagined troubles. Number two, accept your own mortality. Number three, remember whose opinion matters. Number four, schedule stillness into your life. Number five, find the beauty in everyday life. Number six, take the view from above. Number seven, live by a code. And number eight, reflect often. So now that we've gone through the list, um, David, you and I have both uh, read through these items and thought about them, and we're going to discuss them one by one, starting from the top and see how they apply to the work life. Some of them, it may seem from the get-go, may not apply, like, remember, accept your own mortality. However, David, I think you have a very, that's one where I think you have a very interesting view of how to use that in a workplace. So, but why don't we start with number one? Okay. So number one is don't suffer imagined troubles. So what is your first takeaway from that? Yeah, so this is, I think, one of the pillars of stoicism, right? Um, that... I think it was Seneca said that we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. That's definitely true in the workplace too. So this was pretty easy to apply to the job manager. Like, what do we worry about in that role? Um, like, what do you fear at work? We fear failure in our projects. We fear layoffs, loss of reputation. We might fear competition. But what all of these have in common, at least in the context of fear, is they haven't happened yet, right? Uh, they're counterproductive to worry about stuff that hasn't happened. Does that resonate? Absolutely resonates with me. I think, I think um, a key thing you have to do as a manager sometimes is make a decision and or not, not sometimes, I mean, that's a primary job duty, but sometimes making that decision is hard. And um, certainly I have had points in my own career in management, as well as when speaking to other managers, where you make a decision and you imagine that everyone's going to hate it or everyone's going to love it. And the opposite then occurs where you make a decision that you think everyone will hate and they all say, no, that's great. And, or you make a decision and think everyone's going to love it and they go, this is not right. So certainly, um, it's very easy to get caught up in your own imagination of thinking that it's going to go well or poorly, or that someone has felt that you were a bad manager, or a good manager, when ultimately um, those thoughts are simply not rooted in any fact. They're simply part of the day-to-day -day job of being in management. Yeah, uh, those are great points. 
Like one of the uh, anxieties that I deal with on a fairly regular basis now in my new role is um, I have to speak in front of groups pretty often representing my team to the executives or even on uh, group calls. Like since we're all working from home now, since we're recording from the middle of the pandemic, I've, I've spent a lot of time in uh, Blue Jeans, which is our, our corporate equivalent of Zoom. It's a video conferencing software. And I spend probably roughly half of my time in these calls. And some of them um, are to large groups that are broadcasting to 50, 100, even up to 500 people. And with my innate fear of speaking to groups, this, this was causing great anxiety. But of course, all that anxiety comes from just imagining what will happen in advance. It's a, a fear of, of um, just saying the wrong thing or misspeaking or humiliation. But it turns out more often than not, in fact, almost all the time that those fears were unfounded. The anxiety was for nothing. It's a, it's very interesting that you bring up the point of anxiety because very much I find within the practice that you and I are employing that um, anxiety is something that resonates deeply within the, the, the goal of the practice I, in, in the sense that it's, it's really trying to minimize the anxiety. Um, and the imagination brings about this anxiety because of something that, for example, may happen in the future. It may have happened in the past. It may be just about to happen, things like that. And anxiety is an interesting it's an interesting beast because certainly it caught, it, it can be absolute, it can turn into an absolute snowball whereby you have a small thought that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden it's this huge, you know, mountain out of a molehill type of situation. There's an interesting quote I was finding when reading through, when reading through some of the meditations in regard to this um, point that uh, the daily stoic made, which was to say, and the quote reads, and this is from Meditations 729, which says, wipe out the imagination, stop pulling the strings, confine yourself to the present. And I think that was that's a really important takeaway in terms of imagined troubles. What are you doing right now? It doesn't matter what happened before. And it, what's happening in the future is something that will happen when it happens. But for right now, the focus really needs to be on what you're doing now. And anxiety is one of those things that can pull you out of that present moment and make you worry about the past or the future. So I think it's a very interesting takeaway. There's just uh, one more thing I want to add on this point. Um, it's uh, a stoic practice that I found to be very helpful. Uh, sometimes the, the nervousness, anxiety is unavoidable because it's a Kind of a low-level biological reaction, like a, a proverbial butterflies in the stomach when you're about to go on stage in front of a large audience. But I, what I found to be super helpful was just reframing that feeling instead of looking at it as, instead of interpreting that feeling as dread, you can reinterpret it as excitement. Like this is what it feels like to push your boundaries, to level up. And just that one little mind trick really helps. Oh, that's interesting. So instead of imagining it as something negative, you allow yourself to imagine it as something positive. Right. You don't try to get rid of the feeling. You just reinterpret the feeling by reframing it. Well, that definitely resonates with Stoics, considering 
many times over, we are consistently battling this thought that we are emotionless. And yet most Stoics would tell you, we're not emotionless at all. We're just simply repurposing the feelings that we have and not allowing them to control our life. Exactly. Why don't we move on to number two then, which I, I've been very excited to hear your point on, which is accept your own mortality. Right. So this one has to be reinterpreted in light of the workplace. Obviously, you're not talking about dying on the job, but let's look at mortality in terms of the current job. Like, You're not always going to be an employee at your current company. So think of that as your lifetime at the company. It's going to come to an end. Or even taking a step back, you're not only going to be working, you're hopefully you're going to retire someday, so your career has an end. So we could look at the mortality of a job at a company or the mortality of your whole career as a whole. Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely does. I think it does make sense. It's a very interesting point because... In today's day and age, especially, um, you know, generally people say that you're no, you don't work anywhere for more than five years at a time, which, which uh, is probably somewhat true because of the nature of innovation technology and software companies that come and go and people moving around. Um, so definitely, there's this feeling that I get um, when I speak to young people in the technology world, where they they immediately see themselves as not a permanent fixture somewhere because they're like, well, I don't know where I'll be in five years, as opposed to, I think in, in uh, earlier generations, they would have said, tried to be somewhere for an extended period of time. But there's another way I think to look at this as well, that is very much along your lines, which is that since you're not a permanent fixture at this company, you can, you should be taking into account the fact that if you're not permanent, then you only have a limited amount of time to do that, which you would like to do here. If you have goals, if you have um, a to-do list of some kind. So I was kind of taking it as well to say that you focus on the now for it may end tomorrow. And so then you can't, you should focus on the now to try that special thing you wanted to try out, push for that new product or try for that new innovation. Yeah, exactly. And by accepting your own mortality or limited time at any one company, it kind of forces you to think about your legacy there. It's about uh, transferring your knowledge to others. It's about letting others take more and more responsibility so that they can take over when you're gone, that sort of thing. Absolutely. I have, I have thoroughly enjoyed moments where I have been in a there one day, gone the next moment. And after departing a place, my staff has been able to take over from me and um and be successful and very yeah. much so, so how did you feel about that <laughs> i felt i felt it was a very it was interesting because it was very much a 50 50 moment of feeling great that they were succeeding and great that i was able to do something when i was there in terms of create a lasting um i guess institution of the department that i had that that would live on after i was gone it was also very difficult because you're no longer there and, and uh, you don't get to share in that success. But at the same time, I think the key thing that I would always try and tell myself, although it's difficult to do many times, is to think, you know, if, if they succeed, then, then you have also succeeded. And I think that's really important. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's shared credit. Absolutely. Well, and I also think, you know, this idea of this permanent fixture is something where um, I think I think if someone feels that they are too ingrained at a place, if, if they're too big to fail, as it were, if they are too big to get let go, um, it can also lead to things like complacency and it can lead to a staleness in someone's work where they eventually say, oh, well, I'm never going to get fired so I can do whatever I want. I mean, ultimately, I've never seen that go well in the number of companies yeah. I've worked in. <laughs> I don't think it ever goes well. I don't think it ever goes well either. And I think it's very important. It's very, it's very refreshing to have someone realize that, you know, they need, they, they need to perform, they need to do well. They need to, they need to keep in mind the needs of themselves, their peers, the team, the project, the product, etc. Um, of course we may get too much into production of, of product, but definitely I think, uh, I think your take on this from, um, the idea of turning mortality into accept your own um, finiteness at a company is definitely, I think it's very unique and I, and I really appreciated that. Oh, thank you. So let's move to number three then. Remember whose opinion matters. Right. So I think we spend a good deal of our time looking at ourselves through the eyes of others. Um, in terms of reputation, you want to look good in the eyes of your boss. You want to look good in the eyes of your reports. But we also have to remember that we don't control others' opinions of us. So this is where dichotomy of control comes in. We can do our best, but then we have to let the chips fall where they may. If, if somebody doesn't recognize us or doesn't give us credit, that's not our problem, really. So what I'm thinking here is the only opinion that really matters in your decisions and how well you do is your own. You are the ultimate arbiter of, of how well you're doing and shouldn't compare yourselves to anyone else, but just compare yourself to how you were yesterday. So you definitely caught on to something that I picked up on as well with this statement. Um, there's a saying, it, it, there's the parable about the arrow, whereby you can spend all the time you wish to aim, let fly, and hit the target perfectly. However, at some point, your control over the situation has ended, and um, the control of the situation is left to the universe. And as I think you kind of pointed out something like that, you, you, you can spend all the time working on the greatest presentation, the greatest report, um, the greatest peer review. I mean, it's interesting to use those words in that seemingly banal circumstance, but ultimately some of these things can define someone's career. And yet you may do the, what you believe to be the greatest thing. And someone may look at it and say, oh, that's not what I wanted at all. Or they may say, I think you're wrong or something like that. So ultimately, I think that when you take your opinion, as you've said, to know that you've done your best, to know that you have tried to be virtuous in your actions, um, once you feel that way, and that has ultimately come to its closure, that I have set myself out to do something, I have done what I set out to do, 
Um, at that point, in some ways, you, that's the most content you should be able to be because everything else, as you've said, is out of your control. Your boss may not like it or so they could love it. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the metaphor. It's, it's a lot like aiming at a target. Yeah, I think I think the reason why it resonated for me was because um, you and I have worked towards goals that were highly defined and outlined to us at the start. And at the end of those projects, because you and I have worked together, at the end of those projects, we have released what we believe to be the product we wanted to in many ways. And we were happy with the process and all of those things. And even after that, something has gone wrong. And so we could, we could favor the opinion of the outsiders who would say, this isn't what we wanted, or this isn't something else or, or something that's entirely out of our control. Um, or we could favor the opinion of the important persons ourselves and people who we revere. I mean, there was a great quote I saw from uh, Marcus Aurelius from meditations three, four, where he says, a man should hold on to the opinion of not all, but of those only who confessedly live according to nature. And so if he's speaking of virtuous people, I would say in my regard, when I had to question what, whether or not my work had been good or not, I, I thought about it from my own self, but I also thought about it from my peers who I knew were people that I wish to emulate and wish to do well with. And that was someone like yourself. And you and I have many colleagues that uh, are like that, where we wish to be like them in those circumstances. So I think it was interesting to kind of think about it in the sense of um, you can do everything right and still lose, which is a Star Trek quote, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> but um, certainly that's also okay if you believe that you've done everything virtuously. Right. And so when are we going to see a modern stoicism article on Star Trek? Uh, that's a great question. I am actually working on one right now um, for someone who has been a, a, a sage to me for a long time. Oh, that is great to hear. It's, it's not, I didn't know that in advance. You didn't feed me that question. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't have to give you that five bucks. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Would say? I'm looking forward to it already. Oh, good. Okay, so why don't we move on to number four? Schedule stillness into your life. Uh, I found this one really easy to apply to the workplace. Um, one big difference between being a software engineer and being a manager is software engineers tend to get big blocks of focused time to do their work, whereas managers tend to be in a completely different mode between meetings, they get scheduled into ad hoc meetings or they're fighting fires or running interference. Um, so it's very easy to get distracted all the time. And if you don't guard your time jealously, then you could lose a whole day to distractions. So by scheduling stillness into your life, what I'm thinking here is it's really important to block off time in your calendar for yourself to get work done or just take a break from the, the chaos work. Yeah. You and I have both, I think, employed this at times um, in a place where you and I used to work. We used to have something we called meeting Mondays. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough day because out of the eight hour work day, you had nine hours of meetings. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> I think I'm still remembering that right. Um, but, you know, I think something that you and I have both had success with, as you've said, is scheduling in that spare time. Um, whether it be something that you and I have done, which is have a regular lunch hour where you are not in the building and you step out in order to take a break. Or where you actually, I have at many times in my calendar put the, literally put an appointment in that says busy, which is just a point where it's like, I need a break from these meetings and all that. So let me know if you like in an emergency, let me know, but ultimately this is my time. Right. Have you taken any, is there anything else that you've done that's like that? Like, do you use a, any apps or do you have like a timer or something that you use? Well, kind of on a related note, I started a, a practice a couple of years ago of getting into the office before almost anyone else is there and spending the first few minutes in a mindful meditation. And I do use an app for that. I, I like Sam Harris's Waking Up app. You can sit for 10 or 20 minutes. I usually just do the, the 10 minute one first thing when I arrive at the office. Um, and if you're in a big area and there's people around, then you could probably find uh, a meeting room that isn't used at that time or a break room or something. But usually I would just sit at my desk with my headphones and not be distracted. So obviously this applies more to the work office than working home, but it's very easy to do that practice working from home as well. And highly recommend mindful meditation for scheduling stillness into your life. I would absolutely agree to that point. Um, I am a daily meditator, uh, sometimes twice a day. That's sometimes a challenge for me, but uh, definitely every morning I meditate. And building that stillness in is certainly improved my demeanor. It's improved my ability to focus. I would say as well that, and you and I have both seen this, in the worlds of software and innovation technology, many times, many times over, there are very odd hours that are kept in those offices. And having the ability in the morning time to get in before the majority of persons can sometimes be a real lifesaver, as you pointed out, because no one's in the office yet. So you have time to collect yourself, collect your thoughts, collect your things to get ready for the day. And I, I always recommend that. I, I, I have been made fun of for getting to the office as early as I have in the past, because frankly, um, sometimes there are times where I would be the first person in the office. But as you've said, the freedom to find that time for yourself, to plan ahead for the day, as well as reflect on that, which you'd like to do in the day is, uh, is absolutely, uh, un, what's the word? You couldn't put a price on it. It's priceless. It's it's something that you simply could not uh, replace with some kind of other activity, I think. Right. I think it really kind of sets the stage with uh, the rest of the day. I want to make, uh, close this out by doing a reading, which actually Pierre Hadot picks out in his book, The Inner Citadel, when he speaks about um, some of the writings that Marcus Aurelius has around the idea that man's own mind can be a bulwark or a fortress against the turmoil of the day. So meditations four, three says for nowhere, either with more quiet or more freedom from trouble, does a man retire than into his own soul. Nice. 
Okay, so let's move on to number five. Find the beauty in everyday life. Yes, so this one gave me a bit of a pause trying to apply to the workplace. I don't normally associate (laughs) beauty with the workplace, but giving it some thought, I think it is not only possible, but kind of inevitable when you think about it. There's beauty in collaboration. There's beauty in creating value. There's beauty in personal development, meeting challenges with skill and knowledge, like the beauty of playing a game well. That's what I was thinking here. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally see that. I I had another thought too, which was um, there are, if we take the traditional view of beauty, which is something that looks nice um, only, I think you'll, I think you can lose the ability to see the beauty in some of the, arguably some people might find these things mundane, but there is beauty sometimes in the days when someone when someone who works for you has a good meeting based on some feedback that you gave them to help them get their presentation ready, or when um, you, you get to launch that product or when you get to do something, even some tiny things, right? Like where you have a, you have a really nice conversation with a coworker that maybe you used to bunk bump heads with. Right. Yeah. Just like even just uh, resolving a conflict can be beautiful in its own way. I think so. Yeah. And that's, I think, the interesting thing, you know, um, we had spoken, one of the earlier points we had spoken about was remember whose opinion matters. And the important one around that for me is that if your opinion matters and you have the ability to decide, we all do through, so it's what we call it the hegemonicon, you have the ability to decide how you're going to feel about something. You also have the ability to decide what is positive or negative and, and whether or not a day is positive or negative. And so you can certainly find the positivity in that day. Yes. Good point. I think your, I think your point is very, is very interesting though. I think, I think there are so many ways to interpret the idea of beauty in this way. Right. You do in the workplace, you, I think have to expand the definition a bit to the more abstract rather than just, visual or audio or traditional forms of beauty, but definitely works for me. Okay. Why don't we move on to number six then? Take the view from above. Yes. So I've actually had the privilege of going through the view from above guided meditation from Donald Roberts a couple times, and it is something else. It kind of transports you, right? Have you done this? Yeah. So applying it to the job, I think it's very easy. First, like your your own view, you, you look at your own responsibility, task, perspective, and then to take the immediate view from above, look at it from the point of view of your boss, your direct supervisor. What do they see? What how do they see the, the teams and the business context? and then go to their supervisor. If you start with manager, you might go to a director and then a a vice president and then a a CTO and then a CEO. You could just work your way up the org chart and look at the the whole business from their point of view to get a, a wider perspective. And even beyond the CEO, the CEO reports to a board of directors. What does it look like from their point of view? The board of directors are ultimately representing the shareholders. 
and then the customers and beyond that society. And even if you want to take it that, that far, you can look at the impact of the business on the environment. So there's a very clear line going from your own perspective up to the higher levels in getting a kind of a wider perspective at each time. Yeah, that's a very it's it's a very interesting way to look at this because it's it's easy to take a statement like this and and simply think that Ryan is saying do the do the practice meditation of Donald or something like that of Donald Robertson. But uh I really it resonates with me your feeling about um looking at the activities that you do and and then taking a step back to think about what they will be looked at how they will be looked at, excuse me, from levels as you progress up the organization. In some ways, it's one of those things where you, I, I guess to use an example, someone could, you could get given a big report that you need to do and it's and you could say, well, I'm already so busy and you know, the, these guys don't know what's going on. And, and you could say so many negative things, but if to take it into account, and maybe I'm misinterpreting this, but to take into account the way that you've thought about it, certainly there's an opportunity here to think, well, but my manager thinks this is good for this reason. And his director thinks that this is good for this reason. And that vice president or senior senior director or whichever level there is there is going to understand that this is useful for this reason as well. So far more views than your own and certainly your level of interaction with the issue is quite small in scope compared to the bigger picture. Right. I think what triggered this line of thought was an article I read that was unrelated to stoicism. It was just general uh, workplace advice. And the, the advice was, if you really want to get it ahead at work, you have to start thinking like an owner, not an employee. Right. And by doing so, you start making better and better decisions, like what the company needs, what the customer needs, what the executives kind of guide you to do. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it because it is it is so easy to become entrenched in the idea that what that that about these little issues on the job and things like that, or you'll set you'll make, maybe make a decision based on the small patch of a product's development that you'll work on, but ultimately there is a much bigger picture for the progression of the company, the market, the product life. So that's a very interesting way to look at that. Okay, let's move to number seven. Live by a code. Yes, so, of course, the uh, cardinal values of Stoicism are wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Um, so how could this be applied to the workplace? Well, I think every corporation, every modern corporation, has a set of corporate values established by the executives at some point and usually available in an employee handbook or on an internal website. Um, something that I've seen done quite often is when a new team forms, one of the exercises is to come up with some team values. And they usually start from the corporate values and then put their own spin on it that's kind of consistent with the corporate values, but kind of more personalized to the team. And of course, you can do this individually as well. Uh, you probably bring your own values to the company. And when you do that, I think what you want to do is look for logical consistency. Like that way you can determine if you're working in the right place or not. If you find that the corporate values may like 
I, I think it would be very unlikely that their, um, would you say their articulated values are inconsistent with your personal values because the articulated values are always very uh, broad, mainstream. <laughs> yeah. But the revealed values, uh, the company might not live up to their articulated values. And that's where you'd want to look for inconsistencies. If the company says that they're doing one thing, but they look the other way in order to get a deal or something, then you definitely want to maybe question whether you're working at the right place. Yeah, that... that viewpoint definitely resonates with me. I, I know that I have worked at places where um, the values have not matched with mine. And it and as much as those values are intrinsically high level and not tied to my everyday work, it definitely led to a feeling of that I didn't belong. And finding an organization that does work with your own values is definitely very important because because it will continue to spur on your wish to do well and your fulfill, sense of fulfillment with the job that you're doing. I took the um, statement a little bit differently from the idea of direct sort of managerial um, lessons that I've learned in my career. Um, thinking of the idea of living by a code, I'm not saying that someone should always, you know, come up with a code for yourself and print it out and stick it on the door and say, this is what I do and I do nothing else. Um, however, I would say from a management perspective, it always is good to have a brand that you can work with and, and it is important to have something that, uh, you can try and strive for sages must always have something to strive for. And, and in my career, I've taken the time to define who I am as a manager and who I am as an engineering technologist. And it has allowed me to sort of streamline much of my interactions with staff and coworkers because I've been able to say, well, I, you know, I really want to um, help the group grow as a team because a team teamwork is a very important thing to me, as opposed to someone who really wants to work on their own personal development. I definitely think that uh, you can also take the idea of living by a code and use that to brand yourself as a leader. Yeah, certainly. Like there's, I think there's more to the brand than the values, but that's pretty core part of it, I would guess. Yeah, I think so as well. I think branding is an interesting activity in itself and certainly is not something that we can easily get into on a podcast such as this. But I would suggest that if you are trying to figure out a, a great way to help people understand you as a manager, coming up with a brand, I think would be a good way. And now we can come up to our last one. Number eight, reflect often. Yeah, so this one triggered quite a few different paths for me. The first thing that came to mind was um, in the agile software development process, uh, there's a meeting called the retrospective. This is usually done every two weeks for the team to get together and talk about what went well, what could be done better, and coming up with some action items to improve the process. So it's really a reflective, iterative process for continuous improvement. Um, so this can be done at the team level, but also an individual level. And it also 
made me think of uh, the Stoic practice of negative visualization as a reflection, kind of worst case scenario planning in company terms or in corporate terms. Um, so this, at first glance, or at least superficially, looks a little bit like the don't suffer imagined troubles, which we talked about right at the, the top. But I think the difference here with the negative visualization is it's kind of a deliberate process. It's not a distraction and there's it's a finite process. When you're done with the negative visualization, then you don't give it thought anymore. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that, especially because I believe that reflecting often is a key is a key tool that can be used in trying to remove some of those imagined troubles that you feel you've had. Let's say you have an experience where um, an employee gets mad at you for a decision that you had to make as a manager. Right. You can get angry at them for being angry at you and it starts to turn into this big snowball. But if you step away and try to reflect on the situation and understand what really happened, you made a decision and they thought it was wrong. So they thought that the right thing to do was to tell you about it. Certainly, I think that can lend itself to helping um, avoid this imagined trouble that that you can spur up because many times it snowballs and you think I'm a terrible manager or they're going to hate me or I might have to fire them or something like that. It's certainly uh, reflection. Hopefully you don't have to fire them. Hopefully you don't <laughs> have to fire them. Yeah, absolutely. For me, reflection is also something where... Um, you and I have both worked in agile environments. And so um, certainly the idea of the um, retrospective, you know, resonates with me. The one of the key takeaways I always took from that was um, you reflect often in terms of uh, you're not just reflecting on what has just happened, but you're also reflecting on what has happened and where you're going and how do you what do you take away from what just happened to better improve the direction in which you are going? There's a. Uh, Many times, I think it's Seneca who says something about the, he uses the idea of the rudder, a rudderless ship and bobbing about on the ocean completely out of control. If you're on the same boat with a rudder, you, could, you will still bob about on the ocean, but you can, you can control your smaller movements to get you in the same general direction that you wish to go eventually to the eventual destination. And that's how I have seen reflection and the retrospective be used well, which is where you're trying to develop a product and you're trying to get it out with a certain number of features. However, <clears throat> when developing feature number four, um, you found that it took longer or it, we thought it was done and there was a major defect or something that cropped up. And so then you had to go back and rework that. And when you do a retrospective and you and I have both seen this happen, sometimes the most important thing you take away is that you started the whole thing wrong, right from the get go, you hadn't defined it well enough, or you hadn't booked in enough time in the schedule and things like that. And then as you take that away, it gives you the ability to better point yourself in the direction that you want to go. And I, that's, that's something that I think it's a very powerful tool that any manager can use because many times over people, people struggle with this idea of the little things they do every day and then the bigger picture. And I think when you reflect and you look, look on things like that, it absolutely allows you to direct yourself better. It's a, it's a small compass movements for a greater overall direction. Right. Just to um, tie it back to the ship in the ocean metaphor, 
the Agile process is based on the engineering discipline of control theory and feedback. And that's called cybernetics. And it's named after the Greek prefix cyber, which is the steersman. It's the person that steered the ship. Yeah, so it's, it's all about feedback and reflection and course correction. Okay. So, well, that, those are the eight, uh, those are the eight points, David, I'd love to get, I'd love to ask you one more question, which is if you think that you had a favorite out of the list, or if you think that one stood out amongst the others as a more important or a most important point, um, what do you think? Uh, tough call. I think when I initially looked at the list, some were much easier to adapt than others to uh, the practice of management. But um, digging into them, I found that they were all useful in their own way and took us in different directions. I, I think the initial idea of using these as talking prompts worked out really well. Yeah, I think so as well. I think my key takeaway here is definitely something you touched on, which is that there's many different directions that you go in as a manager and there's never going to be one final answer to it. However, when you take the time to do a lot of the little things, it certainly helps you most along the way. I don't know about you, but my in, in my life, management has been a very rewarding experience and a very challenging experience. And certainly... Um, I have found success both in making big decisions and planting the flag. And I've found success in making little 1% decisions that eventually add up to 100% of a change. So it's, uh, yeah. it's definitely an interesting concept. I totally agree with that. I think the uh, reward and the challenge are kind of two sides of the same coin. Without the challenge, the reward wouldn't have been there. So final thought then, would you suggest management to somebody? I I do, but um, I think you have to be at the right place in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of, a, I've got this theory called the reluctant manager, meaning that um, in my experience, the best managers have been ones that haven't sought out management. They've kind of fallen into it by rising to the challenge when the need arises rather than pursuing it as a direct goal. I have heard you speak about this before. It's a very interesting topic. I wish we could spend our own whole <laughs> podcast just talking about that. <laughs> so Yes, for another time then. <laughs> yes, for another time. Okay, well, I would like to make sure that I say a big thank you to David for being here with us today. Um, David, thank you very much for being on the podcast and for coming up with this topic. I think this is a very interesting approach to um, the application of this practice that we all try to put into our lives. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank David McFadden for being with me on the podcast today. If you're ever at one of the Modern Stoicism Toronto meetups, there's a really good chance you'll see David around. So make sure to say hello. Thanks for listening to the Modern Stoicism podcast this week. If you'd like to learn more, head on over to modernstoicism.com where you can find articles, courses, our Patreon, and other resources. This week on the Stoicism Today blog, Craig Moreau has written an article entitled RuPaul, the Drag Queen as Source of Contemporary Stoic Wisdom. 
You've been listening to the Modern Stoicism Podcast, the official podcast of modernstoicism.com. Check out all of our episodes at modernstoicismpodcast.buzzsprout.com. And if you like this content, consider rating us or giving us a thumbs up on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us on Patreon, where patrons get access to exclusive digital content. All music provided by bensound.com.